And so we live, we live in an age that's allergic to commitment. I think I've noticed even a change in my own lifetime. I still remember, believe it or not, before I had a cell phone, <laughs> before my friends had cell phones. And I would, I would organize an event, and I would do it by calling people at home, right? Like on their, on their landline. And, and sometimes you would call and you hear like, anybody know what that is? Dial up, internet, right? You couldn't go on the internet because the internet like took up the landline. And so, yeah, this is like going way back, I know. But anyway, over the period of a couple years, like when I started CJEP, was when all my friends got phones and I got a phone too. And so... Now, when I organize, I organize the same event every year. But I, then I noticed something different started to happen, right? Now that people had phones, things were a little different. Like, the day of the event, it'd be like an hour into the event, and I'd be like, and I'd get a text to be like, I don't think I'll make it tonight. Sorry, something came up. And I'm like, what? You don't think you'll make it? Like, why all this, like, wishy-washy language? Like, like, I don't think I probably might not maybe be able to possibly come. Like, why not just say, like, I changed my mind. I'm not coming, right? Like, maybe, you know, maybe you've done this. I've certainly done this. But why has it become acceptable to be so non-committal, right? And I think one of the major factors that enabled this change was the cell phone. One, why? Well, because you... You could just call someone. They wouldn't be, like, left at a bus stop waiting for you for hours. So you felt better. And two, because when you pulled it out, you could scroll through all the options. Like, what's happening? What's going on tonight? And pick the event that was most appealing to you, right? But you wouldn't want to commit to an event because if you committed to an event in advance, then something more appealing might come up and you might, you might miss out, right? And so... Um, even Facebook now, right, has this, like, you don't have to mark yes or no. You can just say, you're, like, you're interested, right? And then not commit to the last minute. And then, you know, based on who's attending what and if you're free, then yet the last minute you sort of make this change. But I, I don't really blame the phones. These two things, I don't blame the phones. I think they really just exposed something deeper that was going on and that we're a culture that's just completely allergic to commitment, um, and so we just get like a reaction thinking about it, like working at a job for life to get a pension. Like, what? Committing to a spouse for life. Like, who would even do that, right? So as, as a society, we're, we're shrinking back from one another. We've, we've, we've kind of pulled back and we've never been more connected with social media, but at the same time, we've also never been more Lonely, we've like individualized out our lives. We like live alone, we eat alone, and we've disengaged from many of the things then that require commitment. Things like the church, right? This includes the church. The shrinking back has affected the way that we interact with the church. And so if you polled many of your friends, they'd probably say something like this. I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? In other words, they're interested in God, but they're not really interested in joining in with a set of people, a set of, of beliefs, because that, that smacks. That smacks too much of commitment, right? I have to commit to something. But that's what we're talking about today. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. And there's all sorts of reasons that people don't like the church. They find it too uh, you know, intolerant, exclusive, judgmental, authoritarian, abusive. I mean, my list, there's a plethora of, of these kinds of reasons. But I'm, gonna, I'm not going to cover, they're good 
reasons that need to be talked about, but I'm going to focus in, though, on one of them because it's the one dealt with in our text today. I want to focus in on this aversion to commitment that we're allergic. Why are we allergic to commitment? And more specifically, commitment to the family of God, the church. So we're going to start by looking at the necessity of the church, then the character of the church, and finally the hero of the church. So first, the necessity of the church. So what is the church? In church, in short, the church is the people who know Jesus as their king and as their rescuer. The people who know Jesus as their king and rescuer. Now notice here that I said people, not program, right? Because too often our view of church has like devolved and like broken down so that it's, it's sort of like this wooden institution, a set of programs and events and buildings. But the, the view of church in the New Testament is much fuller. It's much richer. See, Jesus didn't give his life for events, programs, and buildings. He gave his life for lives. Jesus didn't die for a program. He died for people. And so the vision of the church then isn't that of a wooden institution, but much more that of a living organism. The called called out people of God living under his rule and reign. And so here we are, right, people, not programs, and we're a small part of the church in Montreal, and we're a small part of the global church, but it isn't just about people coming together full stop, right? The author of Hebrews is emphasizing the necessity for our lives as the church to not merely brush, but to actually connect. Let's look at verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. Not giving up meeting together. I've, I've heard this used to tell me, don't avoid going to church. Go to church, right? Don't give up meeting together. Go to church. As if my attendance was sort of like a measurement of my faithfulness. But simply showing up on a Sunday morning, is this really what the author is referring to? See, the idea behind meeting together is not just the same people being in the same place at the same time. See, not just our lives brushing, but actually connecting. What do I mean by this? Well, our lives, they brush on the metro, right? (laughs) The metro is that place where we all gather in the same space at the same time, but we don't dare interact. Like, you're holding onto a pole, and it could be really full, and then you're all kind of bumping into each other and brushing. You're all heading to the same destination, or you know, in the same direction at least. But you wouldn't dare make eye contact. You wouldn't dare talk to the other person. Your lives are brushing. They're not connecting. Or it could be like at a concert, right? You're all there. You're there to hear the same performance. But your lives are just brushing. They're not really connecting. So it's not like the metro. It's not like a concert. I want to say it's a lot more like Christmas Eve, right? Where your deep familial connection Sharing stories, sharing tears, sharing a meal together, right? Meeting in this way, your lives aren't just brushing, they're connecting. And this is the New Testament view of church. We share our stories, we share our tears, we share our meals. And so when you come to church, when you, you, when you meet with the church... 
You can come to be taught. You can come to be shepherded. You can come to be counseled. But you also come in order to teach, in order to counsel, to pray and encourage and bear other people's burdens as well. You see, this term one another, it's used in our text. It's used all throughout the New Testament. It's this, this idea of mutuality, mutuality, this giving and receiving, reciprocal, our lives connecting. And so here we are, right? We're the church gathered. But can your attendance at this gathering really allow your life to connect this way? Can your attendance at this gathering really allow your life to connect this way? No, not really. It's not really possible in the time we have. Because are you forming deep spiritual friendships with others? Are you able to be open about your needs and share your weaknesses? Do you counsel with one another? Cry with one another, pray with one another, encourage one another, celebrate with one another. You see, you can come to this gathering every week and so easily avoid that. In fact, you could completely miss this. And see, unless you're engaging in community, unless you're engaging in deep, meaningful, spiritual friendships, you'll never experience the fullness of God available to you through the church. You'll never experience the transforming power of God who wants to change you into who you ought to be. And see, this is, a, this is an affront. This is a challenge to our Western individualism, to our, I want to baptize myself in the bathtub at home, right? To just do our devotions and then show up on a Sunday morning, but then we want to do it only to the extent that our lives brush, but they don't actually connect. You see, I often hear this. We say we, say we have our own, we have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? We say we have a personal relationship with Jesus, but this doesn't mean you have a private individualistic relationship with Jesus. Yes, God saved you as an individual, but so that you could be inaugurated and become part of the church community, the church family. And so you see this text, it doesn't allow solitary religion. Like, all throughout it, it says, starts by saying, therefore, brothers and sisters, and it goes, since we have, since we have, and then it makes three kind of implications. It says, let us, let us, let us. It's so obvious. It's so interspersed in the test. We, can, we just miss it completely. This is, this is a letter written to a community, to be read in a community, to be lived out and experienced in community. So the community is necessary. But what does it look like in practice? The character of the church. Verse 24. Let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. So what are we, the community, called to do? There's a few verbs that are used here. The church spurs. The church works towards loving good deeds. And the church encourages. And so I'm going to unpack each one of these in sequence. So first, the church spurs. <clears throat> um, this one, it took me a while to get. To spur is to, to irritate or to, to confront, right? This, the word, it literally means a provocation or a cut so deep that one is forced to respond. I'm like, what? A spur? Like, why would this be used to talk about the church, it's because you and I have blinders. You know what blinders are? There's those things, right, like on a horse, 
They can't see behind them. They can't see the side. They can only see ahead. And so to a horse that's wearing blinders, their view is very limited. They can't see danger approaching them from the side. And this is where the spur is needed, right? The horseback rider, the back of their boot, they have the spur. And so if danger is coming from the side to get the horse out of harm's way, rider kicks the horse and spurs the horse on out of harm's way. And so, we, you see, we all have blinders that keep us from seeing the true nature of our reality. We have blinders that keep us from seeing our sin, right? And if you don't want to be spurred on, if you're the kind of person who's irritable and who's touchy, who doesn't want to be held accountable, you're in harm's way. If we read through the next section, verse 26 through 31, you would see there's a strong warning in the text that God has vengeance. God has has wrath. It says it it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what we need to realize is that God is wrathful against sin, not despite his love, but because he is love. And so the Bible gives us honest warnings about the dire nature of our sin, that the biggest vices in my life are the, the things I try and rationalize away, the things that I try and justify as just being part of who I am. And one of the graces God has given me to keep me out of harm's way is the church, right? But to do this, we need to be willing to allow people into our lives, right? to allow people to, to see into our lives, have close access to our lives, to draw near, and then be able to speak into it, to point out my blinders, and then spur me on. This actually happened to me last week. I was with someone I'm quite close to, and we were in prayer together, and he began to speak into my life. And he was able to call out a tendency that I have of control over people and situations around me. Um, And in prayer, they had to remind me that it's not me who's in control of the church. Not me, like as a pastor who's in control. It's Jesus who's the ultimate pastor. He's in control of his church. And I can surrender control to him. But this was was the power of community, wasn't it? Right? Him being able to speak into my life. If he hadn't to, I would have been blind, completely blind to this. Right? But now that I was able to see it, I was able to seek the Spirit's transformation in this area. And so the church spurs and the church encourages if spurring then is one side of the coin the encouraging would be the other to encourage right is to come alongside it's to support see we just we don't just need to be confronted we need to be cared for there there are churches that tend to be like good at at one of these or the other the churches that are all confrontational all spurring, and yet they don't really care about you. They don't seem to care. And then the church that is encouraging is always affirming you, but it's never challenging you to grow up into the person that God made you to be. And so we need both of these together. And when we are bearing both of these together, we're going to be able to bear the fruit of love and good deeds this is what we spur each other towards, right? It says, spur each other towards love and good deeds. This is, this is very practical. And so I, I call it the, the, the church works. See, the character of the church isn't then of word, just word of encouragement and spurring. It's also of deed. It's of, 
heart and of hand. But what does this look like? There's an example given for us right in the text. If we go to verse 32, I'll read through this. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. This is the the Hebrew um, people. And the author of Hebrews is actually using his audience as their own example. Interesting. So remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in great conflict of suffering. This might be referring to a persecution that broke out in AD 49 um, under one of the Roman emperors, and he expelled all the Jews and the Christians from Rome. And as part of that process, there was persecution, social ostracization, confiscation of property. Um, This is a a documented event. Um, Verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Uh, Other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. This is a church that faced hard times. They really knew suffering. This is a church that when it got hard, rather than shrinking back and pulling out, They pressed in, and they were faithful. And they got involved in other people's struggles. This would be like, you know, Sandra and I hauled off to jail for our faith and love in Jesus, and then the Long family packing their bags so that we wouldn't be going alone. How radical would that be? Maybe you've heard about Azia Bibi. She's been in the news a lot again lately, Azia Bibi is a Christian woman who lives in Pakistan. And eight years ago, she went to the well in her village. She's the only Christian from the only Christian family in her village. And she went to the well and she was getting water. And a Muslim woman came to the well and said, you can't drink from this water because if you drink from this water, you'll contaminate the well because you're a Christian for all the Muslim women in the village. And so an argument broke out. And Azia said... Jesus died to save mankind. What did Muhammad ever do for you? And that woman brought a number of other people who began to beat her, and they dragged her to the center of town where the imam was. And the imam gave her two options. He said, you can leave Christianity and convert to Islam, or you can die. And luckily, she was hauled off to jail before that took place. She refused to renounce her faith. And she's been in jail for eight years. And over the past eight years, two ministers in the Pakistani government has stood up for her. The first was a local MP, and he was shot by his own bodyguard, to which hundreds of thousands of people came out into the streets to rejoice the heroism of that bodyguard. The second that stood up for her was Pakistani Minority Affairs Minister Shabiz Bati. Um, And he knew that standing up for her wasn't just good for Pakistani minorities, it was good for the people of Pakistan. But he knew that standing up for her based on what had happened could also be a death sentence. And so he recorded this in a video. He said, I believe in Jesus Christ who's given his own life for us. And I am ready to die for a cause. I'm living for my community. And I will die to defend their right. And days later, he was. He was gunned down. 
See, this is the opposite of a private individualist Christianity. This is the character of the true church. The true church that suffers alongside, that is committed to love and good deeds of others, all people, to the community, even when it costs. And in our context, commitment to Jesus isn't going to cost us our lives, but it might cost us our reputation. It might cost us some of our time. It might cost us some of our comfort. And this vision, I admit, it's not easy. Right? We, we shrink back from committing like this. And the author of Hebrews knows this, verse 23. He says, let us hold fast unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You see, when we shrink back, there was one who never shrunk back. There was one who was always faithful, the hero of the church. Our text today, it started with, therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, and everything I said today, everything the church is called to be is premised on what we've been speaking about in previous weeks. I spoke about how Jesus, I like Jesus, but not the priest, how Jesus was the ultimate high priest, eternally accessible, morally perfect. Dwight, I like Jesus, but why all the blood? How Jesus' blood is a perfect, ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so we read, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have... Confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through his curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So here you see the summary that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus is the ultimate high priest. And so how does this relate to commitment? Well, first, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. See, Jesus committed to us even when it costs him. When we shrink back, when we're afraid of what commitment might cost us, when we're plan shoppers, right? Jesus, it says, Isaiah says he was despised and rejected of man. That he didn't hide his face from our shame and our spitting. He carried our sorrows. He carried our sins. See, Jesus didn't back down. He didn't hide his face. He carried the sins, the, the things that blind us, the things that put us on harm's way, that put us at death's door. He carried them to death's door. And because Jesus was committed to the point of death, his sacrifice on your behalf means that you can trust him with your life. You can commit yourself to him. You can hold him like the text says, unswervingly. And so this works like an infinitely powerful Benadryl on our commitment allergy, doesn't it? Infinitely powerful Benadryl on our commitment allergy. Well, how so? Because he removed our sin. He removed the root of our unfaithfulness by his blood. I want to show this to you through the communion elements this morning. I'll invite the band up. <laughs> he removed our sin. And he did it by his blood. See, the text says that because the sacrificial love of Jesus, we can enter into 
the holiest of holies. We can draw near to God. We can enter the holy place. See, this is the great longing. What we need to realize, this is the great longing of the Old Testament. That the presence of God would be accessible to all people. That the presence of God was in the inner room of an inner room, separated by a curtain, not accessible. Not accessible because the presence of God was so holy that because of our sin, it would consume us. Not because God is bad, but because he is so, so good and holy. But Jesus made a way by his blood, his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. He was like that priest who once a year was able on Yom Kippur to enter the holiest of holies and give his blood for us. And so Jesus is the ultimate high priest. And he's opened, it says, a new and living way for us through his curtain. That is his flesh. The curtain that is his flesh. What is that talking about? The curtain that is his flesh. I think Mark gives this away for us. At the beginning of Mark in the first chapter, when Jesus is baptized, his identity is revealed. When Jesus is baptized, it says, the heavens were torn open and the spirit of God descended. Strange word, right? Tearing. And then you see it again at the end of the gospel of Mark. Jesus' identity fully revealed. It was the baptism before, but now he's being fully immersed into death, the baptism of death. And it says, at his death, the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. And so Jesus is the one who bridges heaven and earth. And as his body was torn for you, so the curtain that separated the holy, heavenly presence of God was torn open, so the Spirit of God could be poured out on all of you. And this is the wonderful, amazing thing that Jesus has done for us. Let it capture your heart. Let it revive you, fill you with joy, and stir your affections so that you can commit yourself to him. Because he has fully committed himself to you, because he didn't hide his face, because he didn't draw back, we can fully commit ourselves to him. The sacrificial lamb. And because he has made access, because we can draw near to him, we never need to draw back. We can draw close to him and we can draw close to others. Do you want to be a part of a community like this? Do you want to be a community like this? A community characterized by deep spiritual friendship, by commitment, by spurring each other on, by encouragement? You can be. And you might think I'm going to say, well, commit yourself to the church. No. Commit yourself to Jesus as he has committed himself to you. And he is faithful. And he will forgive you. And so you no longer need to fear the rejection of community because he has been rejected for you. And you have the full affirmation of God on you. So you can withstand any rejection. And so commit yourself to him. Commit yourself to his church, his family. And by God's grace, as we seek to live this out, 
in our city groups, in our change groups, and in this gathering. It will change us by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you're here with us today. I thank you for your sacrificial blood that shows that you were to commit, able to commit, willing to commit, even when it was costly. And your body that was torn open for us so that we could have an all-access pass to your holy presence. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would warm our hearts to commit to you. In Jesus' name.